relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. This episode of the America First podcast with me, Sebastian Gorka, is brought to you by Franklin Armory. Shop freedom, quality, and innovation at franklinarmory.com. Franklin Armory, we are facilitators of freedom. Welcome back to America First with our very special guest, Uncle Jimbo. It's Jim Hansen. Ah, right on. A little Danzig to get us fired up. Um, well, hey, we're back doing America First Radio. I'm sitting in for Sebastian, and I am happy to be joined now by the greatest investigative journalist of our time, Julie Kelly, who writes for American Greatness. Did you just chuckle? You're humble enough that you probably don't believe that, but the rest of us do. So you just go ahead and smile and accept it. Um, but the first time someone called me an investigative journalist, I was like, "Wait, who are they talking about?" Ah, me? but you are okay. Well, that's just it, you know. And, and I'm not gonna cut the the so-called media any slack. They don't do that anymore. The only thing they're interested in is smearing people on our team. And you go ahead and dig in, look at the actual facts, and then go ahead and, and tell people what it's about. So I want to talk about some of the things you have dug up in your investigative journalisming. Um, one of which was Nancy Pelosi seems to have a lot of things that she may have known and should have known and the other agencies were knowing. And all of a sudden, January 6th happens and it's, oh, my God, Trump incited a riot or an insurrection they invented. Um, tell us a little bit about what Nancy may or may not have known. So this is in my latest article, and it's based on two things. Number one are the transcripts that are being gradually released by the January 6th committee. Not so much what is contained in the report, because, of course, the bulk of the report targets Donald Trump. Um, the only uh, coverage of security, quote-unquote, failures, Jim, is buried in an appendix to the 845-page report. But at the same time, House Republicans, Jim Jordan, Jim Banks, and a few others conducted their own investigation to security failures. And what that report reveals is that contrary to the narrative, contrary to what the American people have been told, there were in-depth, extensive communications between Nancy Pelosi's chief aides, including her chief of staff, Terry um, Terry McCullough, and her security chief, Paul Irving, who is the House Sergeant at Arms. Now, the House Sergeant at Arms and the Senate Sergeant at Arms are the security chiefs for Pelosi and then at the time Mitch McConnell. They were primarily responsible and are responsible for protecting the Capitol, the adjacent buildings, and the grounds. So contrary to us being told, that everyone was caught off guard that Donald Trump's speech incited this insurrection and they were unprepared, that simply is not supported by the evidence that we're getting out of these transcripts and out of this new House report. Now, I got a question for you. Okay, you're gleaning stuff from, from this extra you know, report that the Republicans did, but the, the January 6th committee's investigation was a publicly funded operation by our Congress. Now, it was designed to, to be a smear operation, but is the end result that we will not have access to all of the stuff that they got? Are they able to actually hide some of that and the new Republican Congress can't put it out? They absolutely can. I believe that they can bury all of their investigative materials at Nancy Pelosi's office or uh, adjacent committee under Democrat control, which, of course, it will be until next uh wednesday tuesday wednesday <laughs> tuesday the third whatever the third tuesday um so so look they're obviously trying to withhold a lot of the materials that they have collected what's interesting jim is the material they did not collect the name 
Christopher Ray, the FBI director in charge of the most powerful law enforcement uh, agency, not just in the country, but seated in Washington, D.C., name does not appear one time in this 845-page report. It is clear committee investigators did not sit down with Christopher Ray. Now they talked to Bill Barr, the attorney general. They talked to Jeffrey Rosen, the acting attorney general, who was in, uh, in that office on January 6th, but you don't talk to Chris Ray? Why is that? Um, and so these transcripts are being kind of dribbled out. Benny Thompson, the chairman, said initially that all 1,000-plus transcripts would be released at the same time as the report. That's not the case. So there's a very good chance we won't see a lot of these transcripts that would be of interest to the American people, especially Jay Epps, who we know was interviewed by the committee, who was defended by the committee, and his transcript, contrary to promises, still has not been released as of today. That's weird. I mean, that really is shocking that a guy who is on video multiple times inciting an insurrection, literally the only person you can find who is is publicly there telling people to storm the Capitol, and and we're not going to hear what he has to say. I I don't know what I would call this, but it sounds like something other people might call a cover-up. It's exactly a cover-up. What's really telling, and um, I have to give a shout-out to Kyle Cheney at Politico, he posted this last night, is a transcript of Jamie Fleet. Jamie Fleet is not only on Nancy Pelosi's staff, but he's a shared staffer with the House Administrative, um, Administrative Committee. And he told House Committee investigators that planning for January 6th started in the summer of 2020. And whoever was questioning Jamie Fleet said, well, wait a second, why were you planning things in the summer of 2020? And he said, oh, because we saw what Trump was doing and we figured he would try to pull something if he lost the election. So what all of these transcripts, all of the reports are showing is constant communications between Pelosi's top staffers, uh, U.S. Capitol Police, um, the uh, Sergeant at Arms, uh, Sergeant at Arms, who, by the way, this Jim, led three walkthroughs of um, the joint session on January 5th without one Republican present. Paul Irving, the House Sergeant at Arms, also did a walkthrough of the House evacuation plan. Now, why would you do that if you weren't planning for anything to happen? And 24 hours after Paul Irving leads this secret walkthrough of the evacuation plan with no Republicans present, Congress is evacuated because of the quote-unquote insurrection. All of this stinks as a cover-up, and that's why Republicans need to get records. They need to release the videos. They need to interrogate these people, including Nancy Pelosi and Christopher Ray, about exactly what went down before January 6th. Now, she had her daughter in filming a documentary, and they're not going to release that either. I I mean, I can't imagine that there's not something interesting that was said in all the time her daughter's following her around during this most important event in the history of the republic. But can the Republicans potentially subpoena that? Well, I mean, they could because, look, um, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, just happened to be there that day on what no one was expecting to be anything special, right? Just this yeah, weird. pro forma ceremony of the county and the electoral college votes. So why was Alexandra Pelosi a filmmaker? Why were so many filmmakers inside and outside the Capitol that day? If no one was expecting anything to happen, why did you have filmmakers from around the world there? Furthermore, she accompanied Congress, congressional leaders, when they were evacuated to Fort Dix. Why is Alexandra Pelosi, does she have security clearance? Is she, was she able to go to the secure location with top political leaders of the country? They need to ask her, too. Well, let's let's there? get her let's get her under oath and let's ask her those questions. We're talking with Julie Kelly, who writes at American Greatness and whose book January sixth and a very long subtitle you can find at Amazon that gives this in depth. We'll be back with Julie because there's just more and more abuse of power by the Feds. We need to talk about. I'm Jim Hansen. This is America First. Back after the break.
Welcome back to America First with our very special guest, Uncle Jimbo. It's Jim Hansen. Hey, folks, happy to be sitting in for Seb. And again, happy to have Julie Kelly back for another segment. She writes brilliantly at American Greatness, covering the events of January 6th, which happens to be the title of her book, which I recommend you get because there is no better reference for what happened and how the Democrats turned that into the invented insurrection that, unfortunately, it is now branded as. Um, Julie, bad as January 6th was, predating that was almost, I guess, I think you've called it the trial run for what they did, the Fed napping in Michigan where overzealous you know, FBI agents and informants and paid hacks talked a bunch of drunken idiots into saying and doing some things that got them busted for a kidnapping plot of the governor that never happened. And now they're getting sentenced to 16 and 20 years. I, I Is there something I'm missing here? No, it's just really another example of how far removed we are from any apolitical um, objective system of justice in this country. And just for a quick backstory, there was no kidnapping plan. Um, there, there was no domestic terror group. This was a plot that was concocted and engineered completely by the FBI using at least a dozen informants, at least three undercover agents, numerous handling agencies working on multiple FBI field offices to put this plot together to bolster Christopher Ray's uh, bogus uh, claims that domestic violent extremists, especially those on the right, which none of these were right wingers, um, were uh, are the biggest threat to the country. Now, of course, keep in mind this is at the same time we know the FBI was running informants into two militia groups uh, tied to January 6th, the Oath Keepers, and the Proud Boys. This is what the FBI was doing in the year 2020 as, you know, huge cities and areas of this country were being burned to the ground by legitimate terrorists. <laughs> At any rate, finally, this goes to trial in April of 2022, four men facing federal conspiracy to kidnap charges. Two men had pleaded guilty. Stunning verdict. The jury comes back, not a single conviction against any of the four men. Two men are acquitted outright in the April trial. The two men who got a mistrial, a hung jury, Adam Fox and Barry Croft, were retried by the government thanks to the help of Judge Robert Bunker in Grand Rapids, who heavily tilted the scales in favor of the government during the second trial. Jury came back, convicted both of them. They were sentenced to speak, Adam Fox, to 16 years in prison. Barry Croft sentenced today to 19 and a half years in prison for a kidnapping plot that was put together by the government that never happened and never could have happened unless the FBI put it together. And there we have it. You know, not only during the same time period are they censoring their political enemies on all of the social media outlets, but they're inventing plots. They're trying to turn the anyone who was even vaguely a Trump supporter into a domestic terrorist. And the whole thing ends up being the use of federal police power to attack political enemies. And I, I don't even know how something like that can happen in America, but we, we've seen it both in the Fed napping and in January 6th, where incidentally, those, those informants who the, the FBI had in the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, did they testify at these trials? Did they offer evidence of any uh, plans for an insurrection? Um, no, well, no. the only trial... That's happened so far is the Oath Keepers trial, and they had one of the main informants who was the vice president of the Oath Keepers, who had been an informant for months. He suffered some cardiac uh, event on the plane before he got to D.C., so he was not able to testify. Didn't learn a lot about informants in the Oath Keepers trial, unfortunately. My sense is that the Proud Boys trial, which is um, now uh, under the jury selection process, is underway right now. Since there were so many more informants, and I believe these defense attorneys are a little more aggressive than the ones in the Oath Keepers case, I believe that they are going to, um, you know, force, compel more testimony from the informants and hopefully disclose to the public exactly what those informants were doing. Were they acting like they were in Whitmer as provocateurs, as stitching groups together? 
Uh, ah, now that that's something I want to hear, because I think the funny part is if, if those federal informants end up being defense witnesses, we're going to see and hear a lot more. Julie Kelly, author of January 6th, a book you should have. Read everything she does at American Greatness. She is putting out the information the mainstream media does not want you to see. I want to talk to, to America, all of the listeners out there. Call us at 833-33-GORKA, 833-334-6752, and let's talk about what it's like to live in a police state. I'm Jim Hansen. This is America First, and we'll be back after the break. My pillow is excited to announce the original. My slippers are back in stock. Last Christmas, you made our slippers the number one selling my pillow product, and now they have added smaller sizes, larger sizes, wide sizes, and all new colors. What makes my slippers different is the exclusive four-layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. My slippers' patented layers make them ultra comfortable, extremely durable, and they help relieve the stress on your feet. Wear them anytime, anywhere, and save ninety dollars off with your promo code Gorka. That's only $49.98 a pair. You're absolutely going to love my slippers and now they are also extending their 60-day money-back guarantee until March 1st, 2023, making them the best Christmas gifts ever. Go now to MyPillow.com, promo code Gorka, or call 800-829-8468. That is code G-O-R-K-A to save $90. Only pay $49.98. Quantities won't last. Order now, MyPillow.com. I'm Sebastian Gorka. This is America First, and I'm delighted to welcome our special guest host, Jim Hansen. Hey, folks. I am delighted to be sitting in Seb's chair, and I am also happy now to be joined by John Schweppe who is the policy director for the American Priorities Project. Now, John, I want to pick your brains because, or excuse me, the American Principles Project. I'm, uh, I'm a little slow. But what I want to talk to you about that I hope will get correct is Elon has been calling Twitter now the ultimate news source. He is, he is now obviously, he's a hype master. He's good at this. You know, he's a, a Barnum and Bailey-esque kind of promoter. But I think he's got a point in saying that Twitter has always kind of been the journalist's playground. That's where they talk to each other. You know, that's, it grew out of them talking to each other about their stories. And they always steal stuff from each other and ideas that per- percolate up on Twitter and then become pieces on, on the various news platforms. Is he in the, the midst of making that the actual place where people go to find the news? Well, I think he's he's taking it to a new level. Uh, certainly, you know, those of us who were very involved in the 2016 campaign, you know, social media played a huge role in Trump uh, overcoming all of this, you know, media bias and the institutional pressure against him. And that was because of the ability of people like me to communicate, to, you know, debunk media myths, to, you know, really be out there and 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 get the word out about this stuff. And I think what's happened is that, you know, the the left understood that they can't let that happen anymore because <laughs> it was a huge boon for us. And so that's where the censorship push came from the last few years. And what Elon's doing now, I find it really interesting. Not only is he promoting free speech on Twitter, but he's also kind of democratizing Twitter and really putting everyone on a level playing field where, you know, if you want a blue check, uh, you can buy one, right? Mm-hmm. And I, the journalists hate this because they felt <laughs> that they were in this esteemed special class mm-hmm. uh, where they had this check mark, and whatever they said was more important because they had that. And and I think he's ultimately, you know, creating this digital public square where everyone's going to have the same say, and it's going to be really interesting. You know, and I think that's back in 2015, 2016 was really when I first started doing anything on Twitter. And, and the amazing thing was you could speak truth to power. You could if there was a New York Times article that came out and it was inaccurate, I could go ahead and take that article, link to it, tag the journalist in a tweet and tell them what was wrong. 
And in a very large number of the times, shockingly, I'd get a response from them because they're very narcissistic, you know, and I think that, like you said, was was something that was used to our advantage at that point in time because they didn't know we could do that. They hadn't figured out that because it was a a relatively democratic, meritocratic system that we could use it against them. And then you pointed out what the key was. They shut that down over the next four years. And by the time 2020 came around, we were no longer in the mix in the way we were. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, and I think this has been kind of, I, I think, a cell phone of these guys they've owned themselves, is, uh, you know, they they really think that we care about their personal opinions about things. And, and <laughs> one of the things, you know, I think journalists had more power when, you know, it was just somebody who, uh, you know, Cronkite, somebody who you only knew when they were on the TV and that was it. Or, you know, somebody who is writing, you know, Bernstein, all these guys. And now what's happened is you see the flaws of these people. You see their biases. You see how they feel the need to virtue signal on every other issue. And it really does kind of weaken their credibility. And and it puts them on the exact same level as everyone else. And, And they have a bad habit because they have such thin skin. You know, they don't like people picking at them. And that's how that's how they ended up. Oh, how dare you say I'm wrong and provide evidence of my wrongness that people can see. Whereas before, if I put this out in The New York Times, you know, it is the unequivocal gospel truth and all will kowtow to it. And I think they you're right. They hated both uh, having people question them. And they got the opportunity to show what bucket heads they really are and to their detriment. So now we've got a situation where, okay, Elon says, no, we're not going to play that anymore. The censorship that they put in between 2016 and 2020 um, has to go. And he's got most of it out. There's still visibility filters and some other things shutting down uh, people who say things they don't like. But more or less, it's, it's open season on ideas. Is, is this something that he can maintain? Is he going to get advertisers to come back if he's actually the place to be? Well, the business model is, is something we should still be really concerned about. And that's why, like I, for example, subscribed to Twitter Blue. I really wanted to support what he was doing. I mean, I was happy to get the blue check, but really, I, I think he's doing something important. So, you know, I was comfortable doing that. Um, but, you know, look, we know that the pressure is not going to stop. Uh, right now, we're kind of in a, in a down period. You know, there's not an election for a little while yet. And so I, I don't think that the pressure campaign's anywhere where it, where, where it will be. Um, you know, once Donald Trump rejoins the platform, and he will, uh, once we're in the midst of a general election campaign season and everyone's pressuring for this, uh, that's when you're going to see the Black Rocks and all of these powerful actors really putting the pressure on. And he's going to have a, a tough time. I mean, taking it private hopefully will help with that. Um, but, you know, the advertisers, all that stuff, we know it's going to be a, a lot of work. And so this is where I think it's really important for, you know, those of us who maybe don't think Elon is perfect to appreciate what he is trying to do and to continue to tout the importance of having free speech online. And, and at least now there is one place where that's happening, you know, because nothing's changed to, to my knowledge at Google or YouTube, you know, or Facebook or the rest of them. You know, they all still do what they want to do behind the scenes. And I think the I think there is a level of fear, though, because the Twitter files, as as a lot of people have pointed out, could just as easily be the Google files or the YouTube files or the Facebook files. They all did this. And the same people who they were censoring and colluding with in the government and who they were colluding with amongst each other, all that's going to come out in investigations over the next year or so. So do you think this this disease of free speech could spread a little bit to some of the other platforms? That's the hope. You know, I, I've, I've talked to some insiders at Facebook and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, I do know that there's going to be this pressure, right? Because if, if Twitter works, if the free speech platform works, um, you know, people are naturally going to gravitate there, right? And Facebook is already kind of a dying platform. But, you're, you know, you're seeing people want to flock to Twitter because, again, you can speak the truth to power of there. Um, the other thing is that it's, it's a, just a different social network where Facebook's very insular, Instagram, same thing. Um, but on Twitter, I, I really can. Like, I could go right now and quote tweet Maggie Haberman of the New York Times and say something kind of rude and mean. And there's like a decent chance she responds, right? Like that's not going to happen on these other other platforms. And again, if you if you care about democracy, if you care about the free marketplace of ideas and being able to challenge bad ideas, that's great. And there's just nothing like it. 
Yeah, I was arguing with Jeffrey Wright, you know, who I loved in the Bond movies as uh, as the CIA guy. But he's a he's an absolute screaming left wing butthead. And I argue with him a lot. And I, I love the fact that that can happen. And I think it's healthy. You know, that's the thing that I think people forget is dissent and argument are important ways for ideas to be weighed. You know, you should have the best. I, I always want to find the most passionate and intelligent architect of ideas for the other side and take their ideas on and, and them personally if possible. And I think having offered that opportunity back to us, I think Elon's got a chance of drawing people in. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's so good for the country. Just, you know, speaking to what you just said, I'm sure you've done this. But I know for me, I've quote tweeted, I think it was Michael Ian Black, who's kind of a, a, you probably remember him, a comedian. And I remember I just dunked on him over something and he responded back in good faith. And then I was like, oh, that was kind of mean. All right, well, let me like be friendly with him and actually have a conversation about this. And we did, right? Yep. Like, and and that, I think that's really important. And again, like, as we've really like grown apart and where we can't even have these conversations with each other, if we have them and we realize, oh, wait, this person is actually coming from a place of good faith, I think they're an idiot. But hey, right. at least I understand like they're good people. They just, you know, I think that's how we get America, you know, back together. So Elon, I mean, ultimately, when we look at his legacy, I know this is early, but, you know, we may end up looking at it and saying, wow, what Elon did actually helped heal this country and get us back in a, in a sane direction. And whether it, it has to, and here's the thing I, I worry about is, is we can't heal too quickly, you know, because we're still at a point now where we have such fundamental disagreements that we have to have the fights first, mm-hmm. you know, and then mm-hmm. we can make up later. So I want to I want to hope, you know, that we don't end up in a situation where everyone wants to start singing Kumbaya when we're not even going to the same church. You know, we're not even <laughs> not even in the same church. We're not even in the same universe of ideas with these people. So that that's a, a concern I have. Um, I, I, I think the go ahead. I was just going to say wokeism uh, became a thing in large part because it wasn't challenged in the public square. Right. Almost all of these ideas are like sub 30 percent, sub 25 percent in public opinion, but because they're powerful people who believe them and they weren't being challenged and there was no accountability, it was able to rise up. My hope is that if you have free speech, if you have accountability in elections, that that movement's going to die. It seems that sunlight is not good for it. It's like the vampire of political ideologies. You got time for one more segment, dude? Absolutely. Okay, I want to I want to ask you about Twitter products. Uh, we're talking with John Schweppe, director of Policy American Principles Project, and we'll be back after the break with more America First Radio. This is a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election story, Storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from free thinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. Welcome back to America First with our very special guest, Uncle Jimbo. It's Jim Hansen. I am happy to be sitting in for Dr. G, and I'm happy to have John Schweppe back, Policy Director for American Principles Project, because we're figuring out what Elon's doing with Twitter. And aside from the whole free speech game and all the rest of it, he is obviously having a lot of fun knocking over all the conference tables, stealing people's rice bowls, all the things you do when you're doing disruptive change. And I think people on both sides are taking him at face value. And he's a deeper player than that. 
You know, I think there is an element of it's fun to be the world's first or second richest man. I can do what I want. But he didn't spend $44 billion to be the greatest Internet troll. And he's not going to destroy this company. And he's also not the world's greatest advocate of free speech. He's going to build a business. And I want to run by what I think he's doing. Twitter used to be a chat room. Twitter was where journalists and other people would talk about their pieces that were published at other places. Their pieces at the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, on their TV network or whatever. Well, Twitter doesn't get paid for that. Twitter gets paid for what people do at Twitter. And I believe that Elon is changing Twitter from that pure discussion format into a content platform. He's already said they're going to increase the size of video. He's already talked about people moving their YouTube catalogs over to Twitter. I think it's going to be a place he's talked about increasing to like 4,000 characters, the size of things you can post. So I think he's going to turn it into a place where Twitter is where you stay, not where you talk about things you're doing elsewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I actually think, you know, he's kind of telegraphed this subtly, but you've seen it with, you know, during the World Cup. Elon was constantly talking about how Twitter mm-hmm. was outperforming its previous metrics on this, that everyone was coming there. I, he's been teasing. Uh, he had an interaction with uh, a well-known YouTuber, Mr. Beast, and was talking about how we want you YouTubers to be on our platform and to be creating content here. You know, even something like Substack, you know, Substack has been wildly successful, uh, but Twitter could easily recreate that and 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 do the exact same thing on their platform so this is a guy again you look at his previous businesses you know spacex tesla he's been wildly successful but he thinks enormously big he is not interested in like let's have a nice nice little business twitter for the longest time was kind of you know the uh you know dumb tech company i mean there there are all these huge big tech companies and twitter was the worst run mm-hmm. probably was you know least taking advantage of the opportunity in front of it and i think he's going to come in and, and build this into you know frankly the size of google the size of uh amazon one of these companies and it, what he did he came in and he looked around and he saw 7800 employees 5000 of which were doing woke activism and <laughs> 2500 of which were running a tech company and what he did is he said okay all of the things we talked about you know changing it to video adding a substack function monetizing content all of the things you can do there you know he needs to take twitter spaces which is a video conferencing thing and make that fully or audio conferencing make that fully video interactive those are not complex technical issues that's known Mm -hmm. art you know those are things other people have done there in a lot of cases there's open source software that they can just adapt and brand as twitter's game and now they've got the one thing everybody wants they've got all the influential people talking smack in the same place if the content and the people are there talking about it who's making money Elon Musk. Right. Well, and the thing is, Twitter already has built in the the fact that everyone thinks that Twitter is where you go for instant reactions, instant news. Uh, That's long been the case. But, you know, God forbid. But if there was a shooting and you heard about it and you're like, okay, I want to find out the details of this. You go to Twitter. You don't go to Google because that's delayed. Right. It's a couple hours back. You certainly don't go to Facebook anymore. And, And so that's what it is. And so if he can build this into a constant, you know, where there's all this content, where you're getting live streams, where you're getting this, I think it could be wildly successful and and something that literally everyone uses, where right now Twitter is still something that, um, you know, disproportionately is used by, you know, laptop class elite types. Mm-hmm. But I think there could be a point in time where Twitter is used regularly by, by ordinary people who might not even have that much of an interest in news or politics. But you, you hit on it. It's that instant availability of information that you can weigh and and have some idea of the accuracy of and i think that's where like like you said you mentioned a a shooting incident i go immediately to twitter i put up the hashtags of whatever we know and then i look at the local people who are putting stuff out it's just essentially running a a large-scale local news operation that's crowdsourced 
And I think that's where you're always going to be able to beat because the big you know, news organizations are going to wait until they've got five pieces of confirming evidence before they put anything out. People on Twitter can just throw it up there and then you can evaluate it for yourself. And I think that's going to enable the kind of thing you talked about, whether it's weather, whether it's disasters, you know, whether it's current events, sports, all those things happen in real time. And once regular people figure out that all they got to do is click the button, put in a hashtag, and you've got a news feed that you can tailor, I think that will actually take off. And the hype man thing you brought up earlier, this is the thing. Jack Dorsey couldn't do it, right? Like, I mean, he was just yeah. far too interested in, you know, going on uh, uh, nature walks and things like that. Uh, Hallucinogens. Elon is, it, it, <laughs> that's, a, that's a nicer way of saying it. You know, Elon is, this is what he's made for. And, and, you know, ultimately, if he can find ways to combine this with his other businesses, um, you know, maybe – you know, it, it can be wildly successful. So that's where, you know, I, all of the people who are bearish on him, you're, you're probably seeing it on Twitter right now. Uh, people mm-hmm. saying, oh, Tesla's stock has dropped dramatically. Like, Elon's in trouble. This guy is smarter than all of us put together. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, I, I think he's probably got a plan. Yeah, I, I think he does an awful lot. And, and not to, Trump's another, you know, promoter, another Barnum and Bailey, P.T. Barnum kind of guy, where if you are listening to the words coming out of the megaphone, you are one of the rubes. You know, so figure out what he's standing in front of and what's behind what he's standing in front of and then look at what he's trying to get you to do. And right now, Elon wants underestimated by the left and overestimated by the right. And then he's still his his big challenge is still coming back to advertisers because this is not going to be subscription only. He's going to need to have advertisers on there. And I think that's the last big challenge. And that's where ultimately I think if he can successfully get what I would say are more like the populist influencers, people that ordinary people like but aren't corporate. So Mr. Beast is a good example of this, mm-hmm. the most successful YouTuber of all time. Um, you know, if people like that are coming to YouTube, if all the content is being pushed – or sorry, to Twitter, if all the content is being pushed to Twitter, the corporations are going to have to come if they want to sell their products. And that's ultimately where it's going to be. Once he has the leverage, which I think he'll end up getting, these guys aren't going to be able to do their – their woke stuff because they have to advertise. They have to reach people uh, to, to have their own profit. And there's too many of them. You know, you can say right now, the ones who get pushed off the other platforms have to go to Twitter because it's the only free speech place. But as we discussed earlier, I think that pressure is going to push to the other platforms. And if Elon's the, the first adapter and he pays those people, well, guess what? He'll have them and, uh, and the others will have to fight for them. Well, hey, uh, John Schweppe, Director of Policy for the American Principles Project. Keep an eye on this because I, I like your view on, uh, on how all of this is shaping out because we may end up with an information space. Thanks for being on. Thanks so much. This is Jim Hansen. Dr. G's getting some rest and relaxation, but we're not. We're going to be back after the break. Uh, if you want to opine on any of this, 833-33-GORKA, 833-334-6752. More after the commercials. Welcome back to America First with our very special guest, Uncle Jimbo. It's Jim Hansen. Hey, folks. Welcome back. A little more America First Radio. And now we're going to talk with Darren Beatty, proprietor of the always excellent Revolver News, one of the the many outlets now, not even many, one of the few outlets on our team who actually is breaking news stories. I want want to talk to you. You've got a, a great piece up on your website because you talked to President Donald J. Trump about something that we've been discussing today, the abuse of power and, and amok running by our intelligence agencies and security apparatus. And you yeah. guys talked about the potential for a church committee to kind of rein that in. Uh, tell me what you can. Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And as you mentioned, yeah, I had the, the honor of having a pretty extensive conversation with President Trump. I would say probably the most extensive conversation he's had on the topic of the national security abuses um, that we've learned about. And it's 
you know, really a common thread running through the Russiagate hoax to the Twitter files, which essentially tells the story that the big tech censorship problem is a government censorship problem, that Mm -hmm. various agencies within the intelligence community are leaning on big tech to censor certain critical stories. And then, you know, there's a thing that Revolver.News is probably most famous for, which is the story of the Fedsurrection, which is also the story of the government and national security state. And so the thread running through all these things is that the national security state has become the chief bottleneck to progress in our country to the extent that, you know, I've been saying unless and until we bring the national security state to heel, politics will basically be fake and performative. And so this is where the church committee idea comes in. And this was a kind of congressional hearing investigation, very broad scope expose into um, the malfeasance of the intelligence community, FBI, CIA, into domestic civilian affairs. And I think we can all agree that it's time for something like that right now uh, that can encompass in its scope the disinformation industry that's been responsible for its new wave of censorship, uh, you know, various election integrity issues to, um, you know, censorship to things like the Fedsurrection, where we see very troubling signs of federal involvement in um, protest movements and things like that. And so I had the opportunity to talk uh, about this with Trump, and I don't want to give the whole thing away, but suffice it to say that he is very receptive, very positive to these ideas, and positive about a new church-style committee specifically. And I don't think anybody in public life uh, who's not in prison right now has suffered more from the abuse of state power against political enemies than he has. He he's, he was in their crosshairs from the time he declared as a candidate to today, yep. you know, and ongoing. Yep. So do you think we can get with a, you know, Republican-controlled House and a Democrat-controlled Senate barely, is there any chance we can get both of them to jointly hold hearings on this? I mean, I think that's it's very difficult. Um, You know, there's the ideal and there's the reality. I think it's an achievement in and of itself just to get people talking about a church South committee. You know, the idea of it had remained dormant for a long time. And a lot of people, probably a lot of younger people, hadn't even heard that reference, which is a a useful thing to look up. Um, But it's very hard to do. And um, so I don't want to sort of pretend like this is something that's sort of ready-made. We have to think about it seriously in order to do it well. But even looking back to the church committee hearings themselves, it was a different situation in the sense that it was covering a lot of abuses perpetrated against the political left. And so the political left had power then as they do now, and they could make something with teeth. Where versus now, the situation is very asymmetrical all the power seems to be on one side. Another issue is a lot of the um, national security architecture that you see today has come about as a result of the church committee. In fact, this whole new landscape in which there are these civil society NGO cutouts basically doing the dirty work for the national security state, that in large part exists as a response to the church committee hearings the national security community said, okay, well, we can't get a lot, get away with a lot of this stuff in-house anymore, so we're going to create this sort of civil society cutout architecture where we effectively outsource the dirty work, but it's really happening from the government side in essence anyway. And so and we caught the him new at church that. committee I mean, would have to encompass that as well. Yeah, and, and we caught him at it. And the nice thing is now there's at least evidence. So it will be an uphill battle. And, and we can talk some more about this after the break with Darren Beatty of Revolver News, where you're going to find out a lot of things that the left doesn't want you to. Back with more America First. Welcome back to America First with our very special guest, Uncle Jimbo. It's Jim Hansen. 
Uh, welcome back. A little more America First for you. Uh, we're still talking to Darren Beatty, proprietor of Revolver.News. And Darren, you've got a, a forward you wrote for a report, Skyhorse, coming out about January 6th. What can you tell us about that that, uh, that is going to shine a little bit more light on that debacle? Absolutely. So this is the definitive, comprehensive takedown of the January 6th committee's report. But it's more than just a takedown because about the first half of it just goes into great detail about just how the committee itself is set up as a corrupt and partisan institution. It was never going to be an objective fact-finding institution to get to the bottom of J6. Just as one example of this, Benny Thompson, two things about Benny Thompson, who's the chair of that committee. First of all, Benny Thompson in his personal capacity, did a lawsuit against Trump and the Proud Boys and some others about January 6th, in which he outlines a specific theory of what happened on January 6th. And this person goes on to chair a committee of this fact-finding uh, uh, committee. I'm sure he'll be open-minded. Figure out what happened. That's a little conflict of interest there. <laughs> Another interesting thing is we've learned from the Twitter files and other things the role of the Department of Homeland Security in this domestic war on terror. And it just so happens to be that Benny Thompson is the Department of Homeland Security's stooge in Congress. In fact, he's been the chair of the Homeland Security Committee seven times, and he is the current chair of the Homeland Security Committee right now. So we go into great detail about that. If you've heard about the color revolution operative Norm Eisen, I expose how his fingerprints are all over this committee and so forth. But I would say the really interesting and the really dark stuff actually pertains to the questions that the committee does not explore. And I would say the committee was set up specifically to obfuscate and deflect from. And those are the questions that Revolver News is very well known for, which explore the federal role in this. And just for sake of brevity, um, because I don't have three hours to go on (laughs) about it, I would say that the two smoking guns of the Fed's direction, one is individual who is now close to a household name, individual called Ray Epps. Mm-hmm. And the other smoking gun is the January 6th pipe bomb. So I go into great detail exposing so many things about those two issues and more issues uh, that really, I think, paint a very dark picture of the kind of country uh, that this has become. Well, now, now here's the thing. You said the, the questions they didn't ask, and I think that's fair. But the questions they did ask, I am at this point still blissfully unaware of any evidence of an actual crime being committed outlined anywhere in the 900 pages of that report. And certainly nothing showing a seditious conspiracy or any incitement of an insurrection. Did I miss something? No, you didn't miss something, Uh, you know, certainly by, you know, it was so Trump focused. And that's the thing is that this is really like an attempted third impeachment of Trump. This is all this Mm -hmm. prolonged effort in order to cripple Trump politically and to more broadly suppress the energies associated with the Trump movement. And so, you know, even though like the the actual January 6th, the, the whole issue at the Capitol, has virtually nothing to do with Trump. If you have to actually want to understand why did they have such poor security, like Trump requested security, they denied it. They don't ask, like, why did they deny it? In fact, there's, there's a little details, again, like this stuff that really blows your mind. So there's a DHS veteran um, who is in charge of writing a threat assessment report for J6. This is standard stuff that's typically done. For some reason, they don't write any threat assessment report. The guy responsible for that decision, not only not castigated, not challenged, not questioned um, uh, in the course of the committee, but he is actually a committee staffer. Liz Cheney hired the guy. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a great way to do it. You just yeah, give, you got to pay the people far. you don't it's, want. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, okay. Now, so you've got the the idea they didn't find any crimes. They they have their and they're they've referred crimes now to the Justice Department, what do you think the odds are they're going to actually pin one on Trump and try this? 
You know, that's difficult to say. Um, that's difficult to say. I would be slightly, I wouldn't be shocked, but I would be surprised um, if they actually attempt to do that. I mean, there is this whole game. Again, this is about crippling Trump politically. And I think there's this sense that, oh, if we hang the possibility, the threat of prosecution over his head, this can kind of produce a more restrained version of Trump that, you know, is less threatening to the establishment. I, I think there's thinking sort of that sort of strategy. Um, I don't think it'll work. I think if they do. <laughs> he, end he's up not very restrainable. That does not seem to be right. one of his traits. I mean, if anything, it'll make him go harder, which right. he, I mean, it, when people listen to the interview I did with him, they'll see what I mean by going harder he is completely unleashed. And especially when it comes to national security state, because so I, you know, I talked to him about this. I said, look, you know, there's a lot of talk about the 2020 election being stolen. But in a way, the real stolen election was 2016, or at least it was half stolen because, you know, Trump won. He went into the White House. He did a lot of great things, but he was crippled and impeded at every turn by very bureaucracy that was nominally under his you know, control, should have been under his authority in the executive branch, but it was totally rogue. Um, working for totally uh, competing interests. And this is that national security state problem that we've been talking about. And so in in certain critical ways, the, the full potential of what 2016 could have meant and what people wanted when they voted for Trump was robbed from the American people. And the robbers in this case were the so-called protectors of democracy. Yeah. But in fact, they're anything but. Nope. And that's the corrupt an illegitimate national security state. So when when and where can people find your report? So again, go to Skyhorse. This is the thing is that all of these different publishing houses are putting out versions of the report with their own introductions. And the media is freaking out that Skyhorse asked me to do an introduction because, you know, there's only if, if you dare to get a Republican, you better get someone like Ben Sass. They're like, oh, my God, Darren Beater, Revolver News. This is unconscionable. So this is the Skyhorse version. It's okay. the version they don't want you to buy. So I think we'll you find know it there. Happens. And uh, thank you, Darren Beatty, for doing the work no one else will do. Revolver.news. This is Jim Hansen. We'll be back with more America First Radio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.